Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When you meet someone online, can you trust they are who they say they are? I keep thinking so much about you. She's so stunning. It's all well planned. Love, Janessa is the true crime podcast from the BBC World Service and CBC Podcasts, exploring the world of online romance scams. And it's available now. Find it wherever you found this podcast. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Roger Hearing. Coming up on the programme, death and destruction for Turkey and Syria after two massive earthquakes. So how soon can the world come to their aid? Also, Nissan and Renault announce a new format for their alliance after years of infighting and recrimination. But will it work? And what now for Manchester City, after the Premier League accused the club of more than 100 breaches of its financial rules? We have no benchmark here. We know this investigation has been rumbling for a number of years, but we are yet to see a Premier League club punished by the Premier League for breach of of their version of financial fair play. That's all coming up in the programme. But first, it's still too early to gauge the full impact of the two massive earthquakes that shook Turkey in the early hours of Monday morning. What's known so far is that the damage stretched widely beyond the epicentre in the city of Gaziantep, with buildings collapsing and mass casualties across the border in northern Syria. At least 3,300 people are confirmed to have died. This was one eyewitness in the Turkish city of Diyarbakir. There are people still trapped under rubble. I have a friend living in this flat. His children were rescued from the top floor. His daughter broke an arm. We'll see what happened to those living on the ground floors. May God give us speedy recovery. Well, the damage is now being assessed and rescue teams are working right across southern Turkey. Over in Syria, of course, it's much more complicated as areas controlled by the Damascus government and by the rebels were affected and both are hard to reach, of course, for international aid. We're going to come back to that story in a moment because I'm having some difficulty getting through to Syria and Turkey. So let's take you to the issue with the major car companies, Nissan and Renault. Over the last 24 years, they've been in an alliance. Now, it would be fair to say that the Allies have been more like enemies in recent years, with suspicion and infighting, culminating with the jailing in Japan and escape in 2019 of the former boss Carlos Ghosn. Well, now a new arrangement's been announced under which the companies will equalise their stakeholdings in each other, a long-standing source of tension. Renault will, over time, trim its 43% stake in Nissan to 15%, while Nissan will gain voting rights for its own 15% holding in Renault. Well, here in Britain, a key issue for Nissan remains the future of its plant in Sunderland in the northeast of England and the production of electric cars there. 
Ashwani Gupta, who's Chief Operating Officer of Nissan, has been speaking to the BBC's business editor, Simon Jack. And Mr Gupta set out first the challenges facing the UK if it's to remain competitive. Number one is continued government support. Number two is um, cost of manufacturing as compared to the other countries are relatively higher in UK today. And this is where we need to talk about how we bring down that cost of manufacturing to the competitive level as compared to the other countries. The third thing is the supply chain. And supply chain, it all depends on how many car manufacturers are in the country. Because just with 500,000 capacity, can you have the full supply chain? So you're saying that you don't stand alone, you rely on having a competitive environment and other manufacturers and suppliers around. Some would say that's what the UK is in danger of losing because there is no clear industrial strategy. I, would, I won't say it's in danger, I would say that's a challenge. We have to accept it and, and we have to overcome that challenge together. You say the cost of manufacturing right here at the moment is higher than elsewhere. Why is that? Is it staff? Is it energy? Is it uh, inflation because the, the pound is weak? It's energy and inflation. When you compare the energy cost, when you compare the inflation, definitely, you, I mean, you can see the index, right? Mm. So we, we have the world, we have 46 plants around the world and we keep on manufacturing. But the point is, today we are able to offset it because of the productivity we have in the Sydney plant. Because as I always say, this is one of our best productive plant in the world. But whether we are going to sustain it forever, this is the question which we have to answer. When you do the product allocation, we need to have uh, economics to, to justify it. And that's where I think uh, we are working on that, how we decide our future product lineup in Sydney. A few years ago, you were creating, you were building nearly 500,000 cars a year in Sunderland. I think this year you will make less than half that. When will we see production volumes go up again? I think today our uh, capacity utilization is not driven by the customer acceptance. Our capacity utilization is driven by how many semiconductors we have uh, to, to do. So that's not the same thing which we used to have four years before in Europe. How close are we to seeing an easing of the supply chain problems? I, I would say, you know, in 2023, we would see an increase of roughly 15 to 16 percent. And, and, and as we move forward, we will see that the world will come to uh, normal. But I think the, the supply, su supply shortage which we have is going to continue at least in 2023. And that was Ashwani Gupta, Chief Operating Officer of Nissan, speaking to my colleague Simon Jack. Let's now return to our top story, which is, of course, the earthquake that has damaged vast areas of southern Turkey and northern Syria. We can now speak to Afra Hashem, who's a Syrian human rights campaigner and political activist actually based in the UK. But Afra, thanks for being with us. I know you have lost a close friend and indeed a cousin this morning in this yeah. tragedy. Um, what have you heard from the area of northern Syria that's been affected? What's going on there? Actually, hundred, uh, hundreds dead, injured, uh, trapped under the rubble uh, or stranded into the, uh, the winter, you know, the cold winter. Homes, buildings and uh, residential areas completely destroyed. You know that the northwest Syria is like gathering a lot of displaced people from civilian uh, areas and cities in uh, in Syria, from all over Syria. So there's nowhere, no place to escape um, in this bad situation. 
And uh, uh, just the Turkish vice president declares that uh, the names of cities will and regions will be announced that uh, they will be evacuated tomorrow. But we, uh, as Syrian activists, we are wondering about what about the the Syrian north, the the north of Syria, uh, which is full of these displaced people and crowded with with camps and buildings that are not suitable over for, even for housing, will they also be evacuated? But to where? Well, well Afra, I guess that's, that's really the issue, isn't it? Because this is an area, we, we should explain, it's an area that is outside the Syrian government control, controlled by rebel it's, groups, but very hard to access with aid or help of any kind. Exactly, because, you know, the, the humanitarian situation now is so bad the interna- we need international rescue team with their equipment and material we are, we really needed to be immediately interfere uh, in in all affected areas in Syria not just the Syrian who is like uh, under the Syrian regime control but the Syrian who is like out of his control because they are in need uh, 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 for any any help uh, during you know the few hours, like uh, Turkey got more than uh, forty-five offer from different countries to help. But what about this north of well, Syria? Well, I was going to say, Afra, what, what resources are there? I mean, presumably there's, there's very little money. We know that there's very little uh, economy economy of any kind really there. Um, do yeah. people have the resources to help themselves? Do they have uh, machines? Do they have uh, the ability to be able to help themselves? The civil defense, you know, that you, during this 10, 12 years of war, they have the ability to work, but they need equipment. I know I, I survived from, from bombing uh, during the war in Syria, and I expect, expect different kind of, 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 of bad circumstances. But really, this is like new disaster. They need like support. That's why I'm, I'm telling that yeah. they need international rescue team to be with them, to accompany them. Uh, they need equipment, heavy equipment to, to, to save the, the rest. Okay. Af- want- Afra, let me pause you for a moment because I can bring in Asli Adentashbash, who's a visiting fellow at Brookings Institution and Global Opinions columnist at the Washington Post, who's in Istanbul at the moment. Ashley, thanks to you for being with us. We've just been hearing from Afra some of what she managed to glean from what's happening on the ground in the areas of northern Syria, areas under rebel control. What are you hearing tonight about what's going on in southern Turkey and the ability to get assistance into that area? Hi, just let me start out with a correction. I I am actually in Washington right Ah, now. Ah, right, I'm sorry. I've been talking to folks in Turkey all day. It is devastating. Nothing like Turkey has seen, as in the modern Republic of Turkey, which is celebrating its 100th year today. But the earthquake is in epic proportions. You've seen the footage. You've seen the images on social media and elsewhere in the news. But what I'm hearing from people is there are still parts of the country uh, that have not been reached, search and rescue teams have barely arrived in Hatay, which is a major town, also a town where Syrian refugees live. I think the government seems overwhelmed because the magnitude of this is overwhelming. Yeah, and and, and the resources, the resources to deal with it, I guess, are not huge. I mean, Turkey itself has been going through difficult times in terms of, uh, of bringing money in. The economy is not in great shape. 
is this likely to prove a difficulty for getting the resources necessary to try and deal with this? Look, I think even coordinating something like this is a big undertaking. We are talking about the towns and villages in the epicenter, several towns wiped out, essentially. And, um, you know, back streets and one building is standing tall and the other one is 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 it has collapsed uh, hospitals none of this made, is made easy by the fact that you have airports runways burst open in in some instances so i think transportation is difficult colleagues and friends who particularly journalist friends who are trying to get to the area have found it difficult because they can't fly not even to nearby towns and uh, and i think you know it's also fairly cold, very cold, freezing temperatures. So there is yeah. the window that uh, where people can be rescued underneath uh, the rubble is short. Actually, let me ask you, I mean, one of the things I've been talking to with Afra, who is there with us now, is the difficulties of getting aid across that border into northern Syria because uh, of the political situation, getting aid in, in the normal ways into northern Syria is very difficult. In the past, it's come over that border, but I guess that becomes, again, virtually impossible, and Turkey has to concentrate on helping its own citizens. Exactly. I think... Uh, it Turkey is overstretched. Clearly, local authorities are overstretched. There's a tendency, which is very typical Turkish uh, government after government, or, uh, there is a tendency to centralize aid, aid efforts. They don't, you know, Turkey tends to want control over NGOs and resources, etc. So centralized decision making also makes it more difficult. And also, as I said, it just the size of it is not is not like anything mm. this country has seen. Afra, let me come back to you. You've been yeah. in touch, I guess, with people on the ground there. Yeah. Are they? Wh- where do they expect help to come from? Do, have they, do they say where they think it can come through, or how uh, aid and assistance can come into their area? Of course, they, they, they are expecting any help because this is like humanitarian situation. It is not look, linked to any political issue. No matter who controlling on the area, we need really uh, urgent uh, support. Uh, people are like, they, they, they expect different kind of death. So now it's enough. The, the, I, I want to add something. The, the crimes of forced displacement now now we can use, we can see their uh, their consequences because after gathering all these huge number of people in small area, and after this disaster, now we can just sitting and say, what what can we do? Where where can they uh, to escape? The border is closed totally, and even the you know the border in Turkey is like unsafe. Um, and Turkey maybe will evacuate it tomorrow uh, their people from the the, the Syrian uh, border. So what about the people now? Yeah. They can't be go can go back to Syrian region. They will be an, an arrest. Uh, uh, they will be arrested, or they can go to any anywhere any place. 
so we need we need really urgent urgent uh, interfere. Uh, Ashley, let me come back to you on this. Just the area that's being affected. I mean, m- many people may not know much about it. It's quite a poor area of Turkey anyway, with limited development. Uh, I certainly I saw that myself in Diyarbakir, but it's also, I guess, true in Gaziantep. So this is an area that is already under some difficulties, not least, of course, from what's been happening over the border in Syria. What sort of an area is it? How could you describe it? It's a vast area. We're talking about several towns, uh, 10 uh, cities, uh, and, uh, you know, dozens of uh, villages, smaller places and uh, hundreds of villages. I think it's a mix. So Gaziantep tends to have uh, a middle class and and, uh, sort of a certain amount of affluence, as does Hatay and Antakya. But then with it, you also have, yes, very poor regions and rich and poor, Mm. Turks and Kurds and Arabs and uh, Mm. uh, Syrian refugees, as well, of course, as a small number of uh, Christian communities in some parts of Antakya. So it's a very mixed area, and it's become more mixed both socioeconomically and ethnically since the war Mm. in Syria, uh, at times with uh, social tensions. But of course, government is very focused on, you know, knowing that there is elections down the road. Government also seems very focused on not giving the impression that they're prioritizing refugees mm. over Turkish citizens because of the of the sensitivity of this yeah. issue in Turkey in an election cycle. Uh, Afra, let me come back to you. Uh, who is actually in charge in those areas that you're talking about in northern Syria that are outside government control? Who are the authorities who should be organizing this or or attempting Tur- to help? Turkey, Turkey now, like uh, uh, hello. Oh my God! Are Afra, connection? Uh, no, no, you Afra, we can hear you. Afra, can you hear us? Yeah, yeah. Turkey now can like supervise on the this the this area mm. uh, in Idlib and northwest of uh, Aleppo. So I know that Turkish now Turkish government now suffer from this disaster. I know that, but but we still need to to do something but, I know but, but are, are the, Tur- the, the turkish so the turks are not in control of that area i mean who is actually the authority so, i mean supervising not controlling totally but i know they have the access to this er- the, to this area yeah so who, who is actually in, who is actually in charge at the moment in though that, that area that will have to be involved like in there is a free syrian army in the north of uh, 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 in north of syria but there are like mm. uh, you know, local councils, they are like civilian, uh, like uh, humanitarian organization working there. So they can organize with them. They are doing this humanitarian job since 12 years, not just now. They just we are, we want to think who, how can we organize? Who can we, uh, who these people who not, we need to contact them and organize yeah. with them to offer help? We know that there are a lot of humanitarian organizations working inside oh. Syria. Okay, well, let me come to Asli on this and say, how willing, as you said, the Turkish government has to concentrate on helping its own people. How willing would they be to to allow aid to flow across that border into these areas which we're talking about? And how willing would they be to 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 supervise it as as Afra has been talking about? I think this is one of, uh, you know, it's a natural disaster and there might be a tendency to relax controls in terms of humanitarian aid and border aid. 
But as you have pointed out, it's a question of resources and decisions about allocation of resources. Uh, you know, there are people tweeting under the rubble in Turkey, on, in Turkish, saying, I live on this street, I, my mother and I are here, we're beneath rubble, I, can't, I, I cannot breathe, please come in, this is my address. So when you have a situation like that, and a country that's very focused on getting to getting their people basically underneath the rubble at this moment as this yeah. at this hour even the cons- the focus will be fr- internal there's no be. denying that I guess, I guess it has to be afra thank you for, to you Ashley, thank you to you both of you for joining me and giving a sense of thank both you. sides of that border thank and you. how it uh, is handling this appalling tragedy that's happened really in the last 24 hours and the challenges that there are thanks to you both Right, let's have a look at what's been going on on the markets today. We are joined now by Peter Jankowskis, Co-Chief Investment Officer at Oakbrook Investments in Chicago. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Um, the I suppose one of the big things today is still this idea of what the Fed is going to do and people looking to that in and, and terms of inflation. It's a perennial thing. But, of course, Jay Powell uh, of the Fed, head of the Fed, is going to be making a speech uh, in the next 24 hours. So I guess we might have an indication. Yes, indeed. Uh, he is scheduled to speak. Uh, several other Fed governors are speaking as well. And and people are very interested, uh, given that the U.S. had a very strong employment report on Friday, stronger than any of the economists expected. And this, the fear is that that's going to upset their plans and cause them to make rates go higher than they were planning originally and perhaps stay higher longer than expected. Now, looking at what's been going on, obviously, the big key thing in the last couple of weeks has been earnings. Uh, We've seen earnings from the big financials. We've also seen earnings from some of the big energy companies. And we've got a big one coming up in the next 24 hours, which is BP. Now, we saw Shell's uh, announcement about its earnings were absolutely stupendous, enormous. Are we expecting the same kind of thing from BP? Well, I, I think they'll certainly be good, but not as spectacular as Shell. Um, you know, they're looking at... Uh, Earnings that are probably going to come in the neighborhood of five billion uh, for the quarter, uh, certainly better than the fourth quarter was last year, uh, but not as strong as they were in the third quarter. So, uh, a good report, but not as strong as what we saw at a shell. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And do you think there'll be more push towards perhaps adjusting the outcome to uh, to modern realities, as in they're making an awful lot of money, but uh, whether in America or in Britain, a lot of people are facing enormous energy bills. Yes, I, I think that that has put pressure. You know, while while energy stocks performed extremely well in 2022, they haven't really sustained that uh, thus far this year. I, I think people are expecting uh, a bit of a retrenchment, a bit of a pullback, uh, due to the fact that prices are so high that uh, it's tough to sustain that demand. Now let's talk about Adani because that's a name that's been dominating a lot of thoughts, I think, amongst investors uh, for about a week or so. This. Uh, difficulties that the enormous company conglomerate has seen to have um, after suggestions from, from one particular company in the U.S., um, short seller, that it was things were not going well, and there's been a lot of pullback on that. Now Adani's going to repay a $1.1 billion loan, I think, I guess, to try and stem the uh, flight of, of confidence from them. What do you read into it, and what do you think is going to work? Well, uh, I, I think it'll depend on, you know, Further actions beyond that, uh, they, they have been planning a stock issue. Uh, be interested to see if they are able to go forward with that. But the key for them is paying down debt. 
that was really what the outside firm was pointing to. The fact that the company is highly levered, uh, is relying on a, a lot of close connections to the government to sustain themselves, um, and you know basically need to pull back on that debt level to show that they they are a sustainable firm. Yeah, we'll see if it works. Anyway, Peter, thank you so much for being with us. Peter Jankowskis there, co-chief investment officer at Oakbrook Investments. Now, the English football champions Manchester City have been referred to an independent commission by the Premier League over alleged breaches of financial rules, including more than 100 breaches of its financial rules following a four-year investigation. It's accused of not giving accurate financial information over a nine-year period from 2009 about revenue and operating costs and about the pay of its manager and players, as well as not cooperating since the investigation started. Well, I spoke to Dr Dan Plumley. He's sport finance expert at Sheffield Hallam University. And I, asked by, I started by asking him exactly what charges Manchester City was facing. So from what we can see with the statement today, uh, the, the charges are relating to a number of incidents that stretch back to 2009. So we know this investigation has been going for a long time now and, and as some media outlets have been reporting, it totals up to uh, 100 separate breaches of uh, both UEFA financial fair play and Premier League profit and sustainability rules. So, yeah, very long backstory to this one and, and quite a lot of detail in the full documentation um, that will be uh, you know, being poured over now for the next few weeks. How serious are these charges? I mean, what are the potential implications? Uh, we really are in uncharted territory with this one. Um, the Premier League is within its rights to impose sanctions where they see fit. And I know things today have you know, talked around points deductions or fines or you know, even expulsion from the league at the, at the very extreme end. But we have no benchmark here. We know this investigation has been rumbling for a number of years, um, but we are yet to see a Premier League club um, punished by the Premier League for breach of, of their version of financial fair play. So... Yeah, it's absolutely one that we just can't even guess at the minute in terms of what those sanctions might be if indeed um, we get to that stage. OK, well, I mean, as you, it's charges at this stage. Um, the club in reaction has said it's surprised by the issuing of alleged breaches of, of the Premier League rules. So, I mean, is there a, a, a trial process now? I mean, is there some point at which charges become convictions in effect and, and there's no way back? Yeah, I think that this will be the process from here on in. So, you know, City have obviously said today that they're very disappointed with the Premier League statement. We're led to believe that they didn't find out in advance. They they were called around the same time as the statement was released. And you would expect a big legal battle from here on in. You know, it will be expensive in that regard for for both sides and it will drag on um, for a while yet because obviously City have always come out and said that they've provided, you know, what in their terms, irrefutable evidence that they've not made any breaches of these regulations here and and again this links back to the the story and how long it's been rumbling on so i'd expect it to go a little bit further now with a with a legal battle yes and you could say i suppose dan that, that they have form in terms of turning around things like this because of course there was the uefa uh, decision against them which they got overturned yeah absolutely and and this will of course i think play out in a similar way you know we saw what happened there with the case with uefa and, and city obviously taking them on and then and ultimately winning that case in in the main i know they got um a fine and and you know a bit of um kind of lower level punishment in in their minds but the bigger charges were dropped and you know you'd expect them again to to do exactly the same here with the premier league which is why yeah i think all roads point to a, a long process to go yet um and it'll be a fair way before we actually see anything concrete from uh, the the verdict itself 
And that was Dan Plumley of Sheffield Hallam University. And I should say that the club has issued a statement saying it's surprised by the issuing of these detailed breaches of the Premier League rules, particularly given the extensive engagement and vast amount of detailed materials that the EPL has been provided with. The club says it welcomes the review of this matter by an independent commission to impartially consider the comprehensive body of irrefutable evidence that exists in support of its position. That's a statement from Manchester City. And that's pretty much it from World Business Report. Thanks very much for being with us, and we're back same time tomorrow. Bye-bye.